Are you sure? It's a uh, race day, isn't it? Anybody excited about the race? I'm not, man. I'm just not excited. I'm still pouting over the Super Bowl. <sighs> I'll probably turn the race on a little bit today. They say it's the Super Bowl of racing, but I, I still haven't got over the Super Bowl. I'm still still pouting. Hadn't watched ESPN since uh, since the Super Bowl and all that stuff. So I'm just not a real sports guy right now. But maybe, maybe if. Uh, if Junior wins today or he's looking good, that might turn things around for me a little bit. So we'll see. Uh, anyway, it's good to see you guys this morning. If you have a Bible with you, open it up or turn it on and go to the book of Genesis chapter 44. That's where we're going to pick up today in uh, the story of Joseph, Genesis 44. And let me say, if you're here today and you don't have a copy of the Bible of your own, we'd love to give you one. So on your way out today, if you'll just go by the information table, uh, there are stacks of Bibles, I think one at each end. Just pick one up, take it with you, it's free. And then if you're a first-time guest with us, make sure you pick up a copy of our book, Unshakable, Standing Strong When Things Go Wrong. And then one more thing, inside of your bulletin, there's what we call message notes. There's the scripture passages for today, and I think they are actually for last week and this week. So you can take those out, and uh, you can follow along in the scriptures there, and they'll also be on the screens here behind me. I have, uh, I found a, a couple of quotes this week that I just jotted them down. I keep a, a journal with me and usually a pen. And uh, if I, by chance, don't have my journal, I sometimes use my Palm Pilot to jot things down. I found a couple of good quotes this week. I want to start with one and, and end today with one. But the first one is anonymous. I, I don't know who said this. Um, it was just written out anonymously. But it said, if you don't live according to the truth, then you must suffer the consequences. Let me read that again and you listen well. If you don't live according to the truth, then you must suffer the consequences. Think about the implications for that. I mean, we, we live in a society that by and large, people, the largest majority of Americans, think about this, don't believe in absolute truth. And so that just makes everything collapse because if, if there's no such thing as truth, then who can say what's right or wrong? How do you have moral absolutes in a society like that, um, how do you make the laws? Everything just becomes subjective. And you begin to hear people say things like, well, that may be true for you, but it's not true for me. It's as though I, I can make something true if I believe it. I can make something untrue if I don't believe it. And then I guess where that ultimately takes us to is that if there's no truth, no absolute truth, no morals, everything is subjective, we can't say what's right or wrong, then there are no consequences for what's right and wrong. Boy, do we live in that world today. But the Bible says in Numbers 32:23 Be certain that your sins will find you out. Today 
Joseph's brother's sins find him out. The consequences of their past catches up with them. You know, for for 20 plus years, these, these men, at least on the outside, because I think it may be something altogether different on the inside. We'll say more about that later. But at least on the outside, there seems to be no consequences for this heinous crime they committed against their brother 20 plus years ago when they sold Joseph into slavery. They've just lived basically consequence-free. But again, your sins will find you out. And today, we'll see that their sins are dragged out of the darkness and into the light of day. Listen, for their good and the good of God's plan. Let's just dive in this morning. Are you ready? If you're ready to get into the word, say amen. Amen. If you're really ready, say Godel Jr. Okay, I'm sorry, that's not fair, is it? Here we go, Genesis 44, beginning in verse one. Now Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Remember who the steward is? The steward is like his executive assistant, his administrative assistant. This is his his right-hand man. And so he said to the steward, fill the men's sacks, their grain sacks, with as much food as they can carry. And these men he's talking about are his brothers. Now, now, Just keep this in mind. The brothers do not know who Joseph is, but Joseph knows who they are. You have to keep that in mind. Put as much food as they can carry into their sacks and put each man's silver back into the mouth of his sack. So everything is going all right. Think about when these guys started their journey back to Egypt for the second time. They, they have Benjamin with them. Their father says a prayer over them, but then the last sentence of his prayer lets you know that he doesn't really seem to believe what he's saying. He doesn't have a whole lot of hope. Judah and, and all of the brothers, they, they travel to Egypt. They don't have a lot of hope. They have no idea what's gonna work out. Their brother Simeon is being held hostage by this mysterious Egyptian, again, who's Joseph, but they they don't know it's Joseph, the brother they sold into slavery 20-plus years ago. They're filled with anxiety. They they think maybe Simeon could be dead. They don't know if they're going to be in prison because there was this mix-up. At least they think it's a mix-up with the silver, the payment for the grain, and all of those things. They, They don't know what's waiting for them in Egypt. When they get there, Things turn out better than they ever imagined. At the end of Genesis 43, these brothers are eating and drinking freely with Joseph from his own table. Things are good. Big sigh of relief. And now they're getting all this grain When they get home, they're going to discover that they've got like a bonus because the money that they use to pay for the grain has been put back into their grain sacks. And then there's verse 2. Joseph said, Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's 
grain sack along with the silver for his grain. And he did as Joseph said. So what's the deal with the cup? I'll say more about what the cup is all about a little bit later. But this cup, it's not just, it's not just the king's cup. King, the king had plenty of cups. It's not even that it's silver that makes it valuable. This is valuable because this is, this is the king's Harry Potter cup. You, you, you guys seen the Harry Potter movies or maybe read the books? He, he has a goblet. And, and that's, that's what this is. Harry Potter has this magic goblet. This, this cup is Joseph's quote-unquote magic goblet. Now, re- remember that Joseph doesn't keep up with all of the superstitions and things like that of the Egyptians. He serves the only real and true God. But the Egyptians would use this silver cup, this Harry Potter cup, to summon demons. They used it for black magic and divinations. And so it would have been a very important tool for a typical Egyptian leader. It's a valuable item. As morning dawned, the men were sent on their way with their donkeys. Remember, that's important because the guys, they were worried about their donkeys in the last chapter, weren't they? Why? Because that donkey's like their what? The pickup truck, man. Yeah. You got to have your truck. Got to have your pickup truck. It's the way these guys make a living. Got to have your truck. They sent them on the way with the truck. They had not gone far from the city when Joseph said to his steward, go after those men at once. And when you catch up with them, say to them, why have you repaid good with evil? Isn't this the cup my master drinks from and also uses for divination, again, to conjure up these evil spirits? This is a wicked thing you have done. Okay, now we know some about the cup, but what's going on here with this part of the story? I mean, what is, what's Joseph doing? He, he seems to forgive them, um, you know, on their first visit, he got very emotional. He, he saw maybe a different side of the brothers than, than he had seen in, in the past. Yesterday, the day before this, he, he got very emotional with them. Uh, he seems to have forgiven them. But what he's doing, and I'll say more about this when we get into verse 17. But what he's doing is he is testing them. Let me, give, let me give you a lesson. If you're writing notes, you should write this down somewhere. A Christian, I mean a real follower of Jesus. When I say a Christian, I'm not saying, I, I, I'm not qualifying people who maybe your dad was a Methodist pastor and so you think that makes you a Christian. Or just because you go to church or because you're an American, you have the idea that you're a Christian. I'm talking about if you are a follower of Jesus, you should be quick to forgive, slow to trust. Let me say it again. Quick to forgive, slow to trust. Maybe you would say, no, Jimmy, we need to be quick to forgive and quick to trust. I don't think so. This testing that Joseph has been doing, you know, go home, get your brother, come back, all of that stuff. Now the silver cup. This all takes place over a period of about two years. 
I think you could argue that Joseph is satisfied that these are pretty good men on their first visit, yet here he is still testing them. Why? He's forgiven them. He doesn't trust them yet. And that's the way you should be as a follower of Jesus. Let me give you an example. If your spouse cheats on you, I think you can forgive quickly. Listen, because you don't want to be eaten up with anger and bitterness about it. I think you can forgive quick, but you should trust slowly. In other words, I think that you have every right to say, I forgive you, but it's going to take some time before I can trust you again. There's going to be, have to be some boundaries, some parameters around this before I can trust you again. I'll give you another example. We had a family that moved out of our area a couple of years ago. They, they were members in our church for about three years. And uh, just really nice people, really good people. Um, but the, the man, the, the husband and the family, the father, his father molested him from the time he was very small until he was about 12 years of age. He could remember about nine to ten years of sexual abuse. It was a horrible experience. I can I cannot even imagine that. Some of you don't have to imagine it. You've lived that. Well, his father went to prison because he was caught molesting other children. He spent about 15 years in prison. When he got out, he tried to reconnect with his children, and he told them that he had become a Christian while he was in prison. And my buddy, the guy that I'm talking about, he, all he wanted was a father. And he forgave his father quickly, but he trusted him quickly. He let his father and his stepmother babysit his kids who were four and seven and he molested them. Now, I would never trust that man again. If that man had molested me, I would never trust him with my children. And I don't think you should trust your children with anyone who has molested children. I don't care what the relation is. Let me, let, me just, let me just say this too, just as a side note. The movie Spotlight is up for some awards, and so it's, it's prolonged in the theaters. Maybe some of you have seen it or you're familiar with the story. Um, let me just tell you that as the pastor here at Rocky River Church, when it comes to our children and our students, I don't trust anybody. I don't trust you. I don't trust anybody. I don't care how honest you look or how long I've known you. I don't trust you when it comes to our children. Every person that works with a child has to have a background check. Nobody takes care of children alone. Men don't change diapers here. They don't walk kids to the bathroom. We just, we ain't playing with that. 
I don't trust anybody when it comes to children. We live in that kind of world today. We have a policeman out there in that lobby. He's looking through the door at me right now, listening to me talk. That policeman is here because as your pastor and your leader, I don't trust everybody. Quick to forgive Slow to trust. You've experienced this. I'll bet you, maybe not in such a severe way, but you've had someone hurt you or wrong you. And I'm not talking about just the everyday drama sort of things that can, you know, go back and forth between friends or between family members. I'm talking about the big hurts. And they've asked for forgiveness and they seem so sincere and you you forgave them. And then immediately you put your trust back in them and you opened up to them again only to have them turn right around and hurt you again. Quick to forgive, slow to trust. Verse six, when he caught up with them, that's the steward. When the steward or the executive assistant caught up with them, he repeated these words to them. But they said to him, why does my Lord say such things? Far be it from your servants to do anything like that. We've even brought back Uh, To you from the land of Canaan, the silver we found inside the mouths of our grain sacks. So why should we steal silver or gold from your master's house? And then they say maybe a little too much. Ever been overly confident in someone? Ever put your neck out on the line for someone and you're willing to say, I bet the farm on this. And then you lose the farm. If any of your servants... In other words, if any of us is found to have it, he will die. And the rest of us will become my Lord's slaves. Very well, then he said, let it be as you say. Whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will go free, no blame. Each of them quickly lowered his sack to the ground and opened it. Then the steward proceeded to search. Now, guys, listen to me. Whenever you're reading a passage like this from the Bible, you're reading a story, don't don't read it so wooden. Don't don't read it in in a British accent. Don't. Don't, don't read this like a science textbook. No offense to science teachers in the room. This, this, this happened. This is a tense moment. The, the, the tension couldn't be any higher. I mean, yes, you, you can tell that these guys are somewhat confident, but they're, they're not sure what, what's going to happen. Everything was going great. I mean, they had their donkeys loaded up. They had grains, uh, sacks full of grain. They had all their money. Everything's going good. All of a sudden, everything's changed again. Now this guy is searching through our stuff. And when he started to search it, he went beginning from the oldest and ending with the youngest. So there's that spooky thing again. Remember at the banquet, all the brothers were sat in the order of their birth from oldest to the youngest. There are more than 39 million seating combinations for those guys. And they're all lined up perfectly. That's no coincidence. And these brothers know it. And now here is the steward. He's doing this same thing again. It's a, it's a twilight zone moment. 
and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. That's when they believed it was all over. There is no way to exaggerate their, their emotions. In, in fact, to them, Benjamin is already dead. You, you can tell from verse 13 in their response. At this, they tore their clothes. In, in the Middle East, that, that's what you do when you tragically lose someone. You, you tear your clothes off as a sign of mourning. Well, Benjamin's not dead yet, and they're already tearing their clothes because they know he's dead. They may all be dead, but they know Benjamin is dead. Their, life, their, their lives will never be the same. And so they head back to the city. Verse 14. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in, and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, what, what is this that you have done? You know, he, he's keeping this, this going. To them, he's this mysterious Egyptian leader. They have no idea that this was his brother. They might even be more afraid had they known it was, it was Joseph. But what have you done? Don't you know that a man like me can do things, uh, can find things out by divination? Don't you know I have powers? You were sitting at the table when I put you oldest to youngest. I know stuff. That's why I used to scare my kids when they were smaller. I could say, listen, I'm a pastor. I know stuff. Now they're 16 and 18. They're like, yeah, you don't know everything. Lord, I hope they're not saying stuff like that. But they used to think I had superpowers. Not so much anymore. They know the whole Wizard of Oz thing and how all that works. In fact, I can remember the first time Annie realized what the deal is with the Wizard of Oz. She just looked at me different like she didn't think I was all that great anymore. Like, are you? Anyway, I digress. Don't, don't you know I can find these things out? Now Judah becomes the spokesperson for his brothers. What can we say to my Lord? You ever been caught so red-handed that there's nothing to say? I mean, you, you're just so caught that whatever comes out of your mouth is going to seem stupid. In our judicial system, we call that um, pleading no contest. The evidence is so, so overwhelming that I can't even make an argument for it. That's what happens right here to these guys. What can we say, my Lord? What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? And he says, God has uncovered your servant's guilt. And that's a mouthful right there. That, that, that's the part. That, that's when Judah knows the jig is up. That's when he knew there's no more running. We're about to be exposed. And I think if you, if you listen with this tone in just a couple of verses when we get there, as Judah makes this speech to Joseph, you can tell it's kind of a relief for him. Outwardly, for 20 plus years, no consequences for their actions. But emotionally, they've been suffering. 
You know what it's like when you've done something wrong and it just weighs on you and weighs on you and weighs on you until you confess that. You may not, you may not know this, but occasionally pastors get anonymous notes. It's been a long time since I've gotten one. I, I don't know if that means I don't get them anymore or when the folks counting the offerings just when they see one that doesn't have a name on it, it's very critical, they just throw it away. I honestly, I don't know, but I haven't gotten one in a long time. And I'm sure it's not because I haven't offended someone. Charles Spurgeon said, if you're not offending somebody, you're not doing your job if you're a pastor. Oh, I try, if I'm offensive, let it be with the gospel and not just my ignorance or stupidity. But Charles Spurgeon, you know that name? Have you ever heard that name? He's a great preacher from the 19th century, pastor in London, great Baptist preacher. In his day and time, the local church was, it was kind of the center of a community. And when a guy like Spurgeon was preaching, especially if he was preaching a revival, people would come in by the hundreds and the thousands. Revivals could last for weeks at a time, and people would just come back every day, every night, to listen to the preaching. And Spurgeon would occasionally get these anonymous, critical notes. And one night he was up preaching, and one of the elders in his church uh, came up and handed him a note. He opened it up, and it just said one word, fool. And Spurgeon, who was kind of sarcastic and pretty quick, he, uh, he said, you know, I- I've gotten a number of notes in the past where someone would write the note and then forget to sign their name. But I think this is the first time I've ever had someone sign their name and forget to write the note. Preachers think that stuff's funny. I guess you guys don't. I, I want you to listen carefully to what I'm about to say so that you're not tempted to write me nasty anonymous notes. I believe in mental illness, okay? I believe that people struggle with things emotionally that they don't understand, and the medical world doesn't understand everything about it either. What makes me, I was going to say what makes me crazy, (laughs) or what drives me nuts. You see how that's in our culture? I mean, like, how many times do you call somebody you think is just a little bit off or they kind of lose their mind a little bit and you call, hey, are, what's your problem? Are you bipolar? You know how hurtful that is for people who are bipolar? It's like calling someone who is handle, uh, uh, mentally handicapped, calling them retarded. Those are hurtful things. Um, what makes me crazy about it is that if a person has diabetes, no, no one thinks that something's wrong with them because they take insulin shots every day. Um, if a person has high blood pressure, it's perfectly normal to the people around them that that person takes blood pressure medicine. But if you take something for an emotional illness... Well, then we just have a way of looking at that different. And, and that's, it, sh- it shouldn't be that way. 
Shouldn't be there. That, that's why from time to time I tell you things like I'm about to tell you right now. I believe that people struggle with depression and that it's real. The reason I know it's real is because I struggle with depression as well. Lots of leaders do. Most pastors do. On Sundays, when you don't see me out in the lobby, I'm a little embarrassed to say this, but on Sundays when you don't see me in the lobby or see me out on the patio, it's not because I think I'm a rock star pastor, I just don't like people. Actually, the opposite is true. But I struggle with anxiety. And so sometimes between the services, I just have to go to my office and gather myself together. I understand that that's a real thing. I take Adderall every day, just about the highest dosage you could take. The reason I take Adderall is because I am so ADHD. I am literally in the margin to the right. When, when I took my test for ADHD, the left column, there's three columns. Left column says not, uh, no ADHD. Middle column, maybe ADHD, mildly. The right-hand column, absolutely ADHD. My scores, I saw the report, my scores are in the margin to the right of that. Like, I, I'm, I'm ADHD beyond what, what they could score on there. I always thought something was wrong with me because in college, I would have to read two or three books at, at a time because I couldn't focus on one but for maybe 10 minutes or so. After a while, I would just be reading the words, and I could hear the Jimmy voice in my head reading those words out loud, but I'm thinking about everything else. I understand those things are real, okay? But I also think that a lot of what we call depression in our society is really unconfessed sin. When you live in a world that doesn't believe that there is a standard for truth, there's no right or wrong you just live your own way inside. With whatever God has hardwired us for, we know, whether we admit it, or admit it or not, we know there is a right and wrong. We convince ourselves mentally and emotionally that there is no such thing as right. There is no such thing as wrong. And we live that way, and we know there ought to be consequences for that. It's oppressed because we never release that in confession. We don't repent of it. And so instead, we carry around sin burdens. And Jesus says that our burdens, our sin burden is too big for us to carry. We have no business carrying all that sin around with us, but we do because we don't confess it. We have a whole society that is walking around with unseen bags, wheelbarrow loads, of unconfessed sin. I'm not a great counselor. In fact, I'll just tell you, I'm not a counselor. I'm a talker. I'm a listener. I can tell you what the Bible says about things, but I'm not a trained counselor. But I'm a pretty good listener. And over the years, I've learned to have enough courage to speak back. And I've, I've had people say things to me before like, I, I'm, 
I'm just so down. I'm so, I don't even know how to say it. I just, just feel terrible. My life is going in a terrible direction and I just, I'm worried over it. And I just say, listen, you're cheating on your spouse. You should feel guilty. You're going to feel guilty until you make this right. I understand that you feel bad about your life right now. You're, you're embezzling money from your company. You are stealing. That, that feeling bad on the inside of you, that's what God put in you to feel conviction. And what you need is not so much a prescription is you need confession. Now, have you already heard me say I believe in a clinical depression? Have you heard me say that? I do believe that. But I'm telling you, a lot of us are walking around with emotional sickness and an internal hurt and pain because of the unconfessed sin we have in our lives. It's not supposed to be that way. He says, we are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves and the one who has found the cup. But Joseph said in verse 17, far be it from me to do such a thing. I, I'm, I'm, I, I, I couldn't do that. Only the man who was found with the cup will become my slave. The rest of you go back to your father in peace. That's the final part of the test. That's where all of this has been going. Here's what Joseph wants to know. He wants to know if what he's been seeing from his brothers in the first visit, in the visit yesterday, the meal where they're, they're reconnecting to some degree, he wants to know if that is real. And the way to know if that is real or not is he gave them the opportunity to walk away from Benjamin and leave him a slave. Have these guys really changed. Before I read this next chunk of verses, this is Judah speaking. Except for some of the lessons that Jesus teaches in the New Testament, this is, this is the longest speech made in the scriptures. So let me ask you about Judah. Is he a good guy or a bad guy? He's a bad guy. Terrible guy. He had two sons that were so rotten, God killed them both. They had shared a wife named Tamar. Judah had a sexual relationship with her and she conceived and bore a son. So back in Canaan, Judah has a child with his daughter-in-law. He's not a good guy. N not at all. He put together the plan for how to get rid of Joseph. Remember that as Joseph is being led away in this caravan of slave traders, 
Joseph is screaming for his life. He's begging for his life. And it's Judah who just walks away, smiles and says, let's see what happens with his dreams now. Terrible guy who has changed. He's changed. You you can hear it. Just listen. Then Judah went up to him and said, Pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak a word to you, my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. Okay, just to lighten this up a little bit, Judah is sucking up to this mysterious Egyptian leader. But it's okay because he has his own gel. So if you're ever in trouble with someone who has their own gel, it's okay to suck up to them a little bit. It's even biblical, okay? (laughs) My Lord asked his servants, you know, on their first trip, he's reminding Joseph of, of the conversation they had. My Lord asked his servants, do you, uh, do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, we have an aged father and there's a young son born to him in his old age. You know what that means? That means that Benjamin is more like a grandson than a son. Um, Monty, this is like a Landon Probably not completely like Landon. Yeah. Um, It's a hybrid. It's a child. But you know, you've you've had other children sort of way back. And man, you paid attention to everything they ate, exactly when they went to bed and all that stuff. But by the time you have a Landon, or Karen was an oops baby, my wife, you let them play in the streets, man. Yeah, you know, you're not uptight about anything. His brother is dead. He's talking about Joseph. The irony is that the brother is not dead. He's standing right there in front of him. It's Joseph, this mysterious Egyptian leader. His brother is dead. And he's the only one of his mother's sons left. And his father loves him. Like I hurt a little bit for Judah and his other brothers right here. Because it's like Judah says, he likes us. He's fond of us. He looks out for us. But boy, he sure loves Benjamin. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me so that I can see him for myself. And and we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants. It's almost like saying, hey, we didn't want to bring him. We only brought him because you you demanded it. We, We said he couldn't come, but you told your servants, verse 23, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what the Lord had said. 
or I'm sorry, what, what my Lord had said. Then our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we cannot go down. You know, he's going through the whole story. He's given us a synopsis of it here, really. Um, we cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother uh, is with us will we go. We cannot see the man's face unless our younger brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. So think about this. Jacob is reminding those sons before they leave with this youngest just how important he is to him. You know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me. And I said, he has surely been torn to pieces. You know where Jacob got that story? From Judah. And I've not seen him since. If you take this one from me too and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. I will grieve myself to death. So now if the boy is not with us when we go back to your servant, my father. And if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't here, he will die. You know what he's saying? I love my father. I care for him. And remember, that's Joseph's father too that he's talking about. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Please, please don't make us do that. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, And he begs, please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. That's change. And let the boy return to his brothers. Don't keep him. I love him. But even more than I love him, I love my father. Don't kill my father. Don't don't make me and my brothers, because of our actions, don't, don't make us kill our father. Let them go. Keep me. I substitute myself for my younger brother. On Easter Sunday, we're kicking off a new series to the Gospel of John. I went to see the movie Risen last night. You should probably go see it. I didn't think it was all that great. But it reminded me just how little many of us know about the Gospels and Jesus and his life, his mission, his message. We're going to spend weeks starting Easter Sunday just unpacking 
the Gospel of John. And we're going to start Easter Sunday with the resurrection of Jesus. All four of the Gospels, all four of the Gospels mean to tell you the most important thing about Jesus that you need to know is that he lived and died as a sacrifice for your sins and mine. He lives again, and if you'll trust him, you can live too. The Gospels are passion narratives. Everything that comes before the crucifixion, death, and resurrection of Jesus is meant to answer the question, who is that man hanging on the cross? Jesus came out of the tribe of Judah. His great, 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 however many greats you can go back, his great, 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 great grandfather is Judah. Judah here is a foreshadowing of his son, grandson, Yeshua, Jesus, who says not to Joseph, but to the heavenly Father, God Almighty, don't kill Ed, don't kill Steve, don't kill Kyle, don't kill Jimmy, kill me for their sins. Let me be the substitution, let me take their place. For Judah, this is change. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No. Don't let me see this misery that would come to my father. Not again. He changed. Roughly two years ago, it seems like Joseph forgave his brothers. But he tested them to see what their heart was really like, to see if they could be trusted. And you'll see next week that Joseph does. He reveals himself to his brothers. And it'll be a story you don't want to miss. It's very powerful. Let me share this with you before we close. Jesus said that with with human beings, some things are impossible. But with the Heavenly Father, all things are possible. If God can bring change and reconciliation to a rotten family like this, he can change yours too. If he can bring 
help, hope, healing to these people. He, he can bring it to your life too. If he can change someone as filthy and rotten as Judah, the Apostle Paul, and Pastor Jimmy Britt, he can change you. If you're willing to change, anything's possible. Let me pray for us. If you would, just bow your head and close your eyes. If you're here today and you have unconfessed sin in your life, maybe you're a Christian but it's been a long time since you've just been honest with the Lord to say, hey, God, this, we've just got this stuff between us. See, when you become a Christian, it's as though God gives us two ships. He gives us a relationship and fellowship. The relationship is completely dependent on him. And God is faithful. You might not be faithful. You can't be 100% faithful. If you could be, you wouldn't need him. But he's always faithful. The relationship depends on him, but the fellowship depends on us. And the way we destroy the fellowship that we have with God is we don't spend time with him. We don't have times of confession with him where we're just honest with him about who we are and the things that we deal with and the things that we struggle with. And so maybe the reason that you feel a disconnect from God is not because the relationship isn't there, but the fellowship is ruined. It's messed up. And it's because you have a wheelbarrow load of unconfessed sin. So just confess it to him right now. And then there are others either in this room or listening right now and you've realized today that you are a sinner like everyone else and like everyone else, you need to be forgiven of those sins. You need a savior. Well, that savior is Jesus who is the Christ, the son of God. And he'll forgive you right now. So why don't you just ask him in your way without saying it out loud. You can whisper it to him if you'd like, but you can say this in your heart and mind. Just, just ask him to forgive you. Tell him that you don't want to live in the darkness anymore. You want to live in the light of his truth and his word, to follow his son And now just say, Jesus, in the best way I know how, I invite you into my life. Fill me with your Holy Spirit to give me courage and strength to follow you for the rest of my life. Every day from here going forward, it'll be about you, not about me. 
And now just say, Jesus, thank you for loving me and thank you for saving me. Jesus, it's in your great name that we pray. Amen. Look at me just for a minute because I'm going to ask you to do a couple things. One, if you prayed to ask for forgiveness for your sins, if you invited Jesus into your heart and your life, let us know about it. The way to do that is to take your connection card, make sure we've got your name and a way to contact you. And then on the front or the back of the card, you can just write a B on it. That B means I'm believing in Jesus today. But listen, if you have questions about what it means to be a Christian, if you have questions about what it means to have your sins forgiven, then on that same card, just write a Q on it. Then on your way out today, we'll have ushers at all the exits. You just drop that connection card in that receiving basket. And this week, look at me. I will call you. Or if you give me the email because you don't want me to call you, I will email you. And we can answer those questions. Listen, that is what we are here for. It's to help. And the most important decision you will ever make in your life is to decide what you're going to do with Jesus. So make sure you, you do that. And I want to ask you about one more thing. I, this was really impromptu in the first service, but I, I did it in the second service, so I want to do it in this one as well. Um, I like to read. I like to write. I like to talk. And I like to watch the Carolina Panthers. And a few other things. Um, one day, I'd like to write a book that, a publishing house feels like they could print it because somebody would want to buy it on the shelf. That may happen. It may not happen. I'm not that concerned with it. But for about four years now, I've been working with a good friend of mine, one of my closest friends in life, one of my best friends in ministry, um, on a book project. He has a form of it now, but it's a book project about how to take next steps with Jesus. So it would be a book like, right now I could say to those who put their faith and trust in Jesus this morning, make sure you give us your connection card information, but also go by, go by the information table and pick up a copy of My Next Steps with Jesus. And that explains baptism. It explains how to share your faith, how to write down your own story. Um, the next steps that a believer, a new believer, would take. Um, I, I, like with our Unshakable books, I have someone who can publish that. They do stuff like this all the time. It's, it's uh, someone who just does a great job with this stuff. And the books cost between $5 and $10, just depending on the quantity that you buy them. The best price is $5 a book, the minimum quantity is 500 for that price. So that's $2,500. But we don't have money like that in the budget. And honestly, I wouldn't feel comfortable doing something like that out of the budget. Um, but I feel like it's something that we could definitely use here to give to new believers. And so what I was thinking is that maybe we could do something similar to what we did with the Unshakable book. That if we had enough people that wanted to buy them, we could... We could buy 
in such a way that you could have a copy and then there would be extra money that pays for a book to give to somebody else. So I'd just like to know if you're interested in that or not. And so what, what I would like for you to do, if you are interested, is just on the back of your connection card, just write books on it. Or maybe it's a book if you're interested in one book. But if you're interested in maybe buying multiple copies, you know, for other people or yourself or whatever, just, just maybe jot that down. And this week I'll collect those and talk to our publisher. One of the things that I would like to do in the back of the book is put the Gospel of John. And going into this new series at Easter, I don't, it takes about three to four weeks to get the book done. I'm almost finished with my story and two or three chapters that I have to add in there and then some additions. But it's possible we could get it by Easter. I, I don't know. But the whole project, if we're, if we're able to buy enough of them, they're, they're 2500 bucks. But if we don't sell enough, we won't be able to buy them at that quantity. But the books will cost us each about $8 a piece or something like that or just whatever it takes to pay for that quantity. But if you're interested, just, just make that note on your connection card and then drop it into the receiving basket on your way out. Let's stand together. We're going to close with a great song called Rooftops. I hope that you will share your faith this week, shouting it out from the rooftops. But listen, not just with your words, but with the way you live your life. Let people see Jesus because of the way you're living, okay? God bless you guys. I love you. It's been a good day, don't you think? I love this story. Do you guys love this story? Or am I, am I boring you with this every week? Okay, Wait till we get into the Gospel of John. I cannot wait. Anyway, I better let y'all sing now. Or do you want me to keep talking? Sing. We'll sing. Let's just sing. 30 minutes. All right. We better hurry then.